0: Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Helen Alvarez. Helen is the Robert A. Levy Endowed Chair in Law and Liberty at Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. She teaches family law, law and religion, and property law. She writes on marriage, parenting, non-marital households, and First Amendment Religion Clauses. She's the author of Putting Children's Interests First in U.S. Family Law and Christianity and Conscience. And that's only a tip of the many things that Helen does. She's also an advisor to the Law School Civil Rights Law Journal. She's also an advisor for the Latino Latina Law Student Association. She consults at the Holy See. She's a member of Catholic Relief Services. But most importantly, she's a faithful Catholic that can speak to us on what is, I would say, an issue that is blowing up on the scene in the United States. And what is that issue? It is the abortion law in Texas that bans abortions after a fetal heartbeat is detected, which basically is six weeks. The law went live September 1st, 2021. The Supreme Court did not put a hold on the law while it works its way through the legal system. So right now in Texas, people are up in arms. You have pro-lifers that are happy. You have people who support abortion that are angry, upset, worried. What's a faithful Catholic to do? Well, how do Catholics see this? How do Catholics that have some legal training see this? And this is why I wanted to talk with Helen Alvarez. She's been a vocal supporter of women. She's been a vocal supporter of women's dignity. And I think those are at crux, at, at the heart of this issue of what this law means for women. Well yes, look, we're coming at this from Catholics and abortion is wrong, it's a grave evil with our understanding of the human person and right and wrong. So that is the basis for a lot of our conversation, but we also realize that we need to go deeper. We need to talk about the systems of oppression that impact women. We need to talk about what is it like in the workplace? What is it like In schools? What is it like, pretty much in society, if you are pregnant or facing the possibility of being pregnant? What systems still stand in place to actually harm women? Are we focused on the right issues here when we talk about this law? Are we focused on really the liberation of women, the equality of women, the dignity of women, or something else? And, you know, it's really tied up with being women that kids will come into the equation because as God designed us, it is through a woman's body that the future of the human family continues. So children are integral in discussions of women. It's not an affront to us. It's just the way we're made. And so we have to have that real conversation about our attitudes, practices, traditions, and belief around women and children and mothering and surviving in our country. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media, and America is committed to hosting very real, honest conversations in the Catholic Church today, and that is unique. For example, we have very nuanced conversations around making abortion unthinkable. What does that mean? What does that look like? What are the practical applications of that? We discussed that. We've written about it at America Magazine. And if you want to continue supporting those kinds of discussions, and if those discussions are meaningful to you, as it is to me, then get a digital subscription to America. It gives you access to all of our content, all of those conversations and opinions that are informed and nuanced. So go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Helen Alvarez is up next. I was trying to think about like the first time we met. And I can't remember. I I remember though many times seeing you speak, whether it was on video Or I was super happy to be able to go to the Helen and Helen discussion. I think it was either a Catholic or a Georgetown. I can't remember.
1: Wow. That's a long time ago. Helen Prejean and myself. You know, that was a fun one. That was super awesome. And I was like, you know. If you can call a discussion of abortion and capital punishment fun. But it was was really an honor to be at the same table with a woman who, frankly, single-handedly Move the capital punishment discussion along yes, yes. in the church and in the United States.
0: And God bless her. And her episode is debuting right before yours. I felt wow. like we got a Helen and Helen back to back. <laughs> awesome. A real treat for our listeners. But you're also very talented in many other things besides your brilliant mind with law. Because I've been with you personally, you just have a lot of gifts that a lot of people don't know about. That I marvel all the more. And I'm so happy you are a prominent voice for women in the church because we need that. And I think even your model of being a professor, being a mother, being a wife really sets up for women the possibilities of what we can do while at the same time being faithfully Catholic. Well, right
1: back at you, Gloria, and all you do. So yes, there's a lot of Catholic women of varied interests and many Mm -hmm. varied talents in this church. I laugh when people think the church is such a monolith. And I think, oh my gosh, spend 10 minutes with me (laughs) in one day meeting five women and you'll see. Exactly.
0: And I think, you know, right now in the United States, there's a big conversation about women with this recent law that went into effect September 1st in Texas. I think it's uh, SB 8 or SB, something like that. But anyway, the law bans abortions after a heartbeat is detected. And that's typically at six weeks. And in the law itself, it requires doctors to do this test to see if there's a heartbeat. I will note that the law allows for abortions if the life of the mother is at risk, but it also tells the physician that they have to document in the patient's file and also document on their own why they reached that diagnosis. So in effect, people are saying because of this law, which came into effect September 1st there effectively would be no abortions in Texas. So the question I have is how does this law impact women? Will women be arrested? Will they be compelled to testify in civil lawsuits? How does this
1: what does this mean? What does this law mean? That's a really big question and I think it has to be answered against the backdrop of what legal abortion has meant for women. One thing we know is since abortion kind of, you know, even more than contraception, sort of definitively breaks off the link between a sexual encounter today and the possibility of tomorrow, Mm. it it has really impacted male-female relationships. You have, according to a very famous paper by Janet Yellen, our Treasury Secretary now, more sort of risk-taking in the sexual arena. So you've got more uncommitted sexual encounters, more STDs, more non-marital pregnancies, more non-marital births more abortions than when it was only legal here and there before Roe versus Wade, you've got a lot of results of the risk compensation that Roe versus Wade set up. Mm. When abortion is cabined back to six weeks, Texas estimates that 85% of its current abortions are after six weeks, which it's kind of interesting, Gloria, in itself for most people to think, oh, okay. So most are after the heartbeat has begun Mm -hmm. and only about 15% of its current abortions are before that time. So people will either choose to have an abortion sooner or a whole lot of abortions are not going to take place in Texas. Right. People may go out of state. One of the other impacts is that people may think about their birth control differently. You know, you may have people deciding that they better they really don't want to risk a pregnancy and they are open to birth control, they may decide that they're going to use it far more scrupulously than they have in the past or use a different kind. The effects are going to go both backwards and forwards in the chain. Mm.
0: Well, I think one of the concerns people have is, does this law allow women to be arrested
1: if they have an abortion? It does not. It's interesting. Obviously, the pro-life movement has always had to grapple with the moral anomaly, We know, empirically speaking, that abortion is killing. Why aren't we moving to the legal penalties for killing? Pro-lifers have always said and continue to say, the person who does the killing, who performs the procedure, yes, let's penalize them and not women. That has been a truism of the pro-life movement since the beginning. So fines are levied by this law on the abortion clinic or provider. Mm -hmm. and not on the woman.
0: And also on anyone that aids and abets the abortion, correct? Correct, yes. So, you know, one of the complaints that I have heard about why people say that they think this law is unjust is one of the scenarios you mentioned about women who can, will leave the state of Texas to get abortions. And therefore it is only poor women who are not able to access abortions. And as a Catholic, we both are Catholics. We know clearly what the church teaches, that abortion is a grave evil. And so for me, I feel like I'm coming at this so differently than a lot of people, than a lot of the complaints I've seen, because I start to say, well, what is justice? Is abortion justice? And because I say, no, it is not a justice fundamentally, because when you look at what rights are and you look at what justice is from a Catholic perspective, it goes against, I guess, what I would say is the natural law about what it means to be a woman. You know, it is not unjust that we can get pregnant and have children. And so to treat that as an injustice that we need to escape by means of abortion, to me, reverses completely. It, it, it turns upside down and twists what it really means in terms of justice. So I don't see women going out of state getting an abortion means that they are able to seek justice. I just think they're able to act unjustly and contrary to what it means to be a woman. And for those poor women who are in the state of Texas who are not able to access abortion, it just means they're not able to access something that really is an injustice upon themselves. And I come to this as someone who is fiercely pro-woman, and I don't think abortion challenges the systems that lead women to pick abortions or feel like they have to choose abortions. Right. And so I think the harder work of changing the systems, the structures of sin that frankly set up maleness as perfection for all human persons
1: is what we need to take down. Now, you know, we are where we are, right? With, you know, 50 years where certain strands of feminism have articulated the ability to be free of childbearing, by any means necessary, right up to and including abortion, as justice for women. We're so used to hearing that it's the water we swim in. Mm -hmm. There was a moment in time when that conversation could have gone differently. You know, National Organization for Women, Betty Friedan and others, did not include abortion in their original statement of equality for women. Mm -hmm. They included, you know, a level playing field. They included accommodating women as moms. We're so far off the model where we're willing to allow people to enter into the workplace, the university, the public square, encumbered, if you will, by people they take care of, an elderly relative, a disabled sister, a child. We're so far from that model that when somebody says that there are obligations to people that we don't choose we right away get our feathers all ruffled. Mm, And there's a great line from the bishop's statement in 1995. Actually, it's my favorite pro-life document they ever wrote. They said, like, you know, like the Good Samaritan, we don't choose those we're supposed to go out of the way for. We are chosen Mm. as people whose job is to go out of our way for the other. Mm. It's not about choosing. It's about being chosen to love, being chosen to include, choosing others who are dependent and taking care of them. So there was a moment when feminism was sort of staking its main claims. We could have said, it's obvious that women are going to continue to be the childbearers. We've seen that even when given the choice, women tend to want to flex their schedules a bit more around children. Not all, but on average right and therefore how are we going to give women a level playing field that includes their preferences and desires and you know still today if you ask women what's your ideal working situation a woman with children under 18 will say i'd really love to flex that you know mm-hmm. around justice at home if you ask women how many children they want they say more children than they're having they say 2.7 and we're having like 1.8 right and so abortion Came in and inflected feminism in a direction that the majority of women still say they don't want to go. Interesting. But the system, the conveyor belt of oh, your contraception failed, abortion's available, so that when you stop that conveyor belt, people are like, oh my gosh, that's, that's you know, don't that's shocking to stop it. Like, and the media very much is playing up this Texas situation as a we all agree that abortion is a necessary aspect of feminism. Don't stop it. And they assume Mm. they're assuming their audience has that perspective, whereas what you just said flips
0: it. Right. Right. Well, so one of the things also in terms of justice that I thought about in terms of women, you and I both know from being involved in this for so long that women are also coerced into abortions, whether it's the employer making it clear that they will lose their job or they'll have some other unfavorable action happen to them. Or in school, they're not given accommodations, just, you know, the hostility toward pregnancy or the outright threat. A husband saying, if you have this child, I will beat you to death. Same with the boyfriend. The threat of you can't live in this house if you bring this child. So women are... Sometimes, at least in my experience, working with uh, pregnancy centers and maternity homes and post-abortion ministry, we come to find out a lot of coercion happens, right? And so I was thinking... Maybe through this law, these women can get justice against the people who coerce them. A lot of times, you know, the-, the well, Wouldn't that be interesting to build that in? That would be very, very useful. Well, that's, uh, I have to say, you know, when everybody's saying, oh, women are going to be arrested, I was like, well, I read the law. No, they aren't. And I also thought that's never been what we have ever aspired to in the pro-life movement. Right. But I also start to think about the real women that I have met who have been deeply abused by people in her life that she trusted. And in a year, two years, five years, ten years, when she wakes up to that and is able to name it, that there is an avenue for her to get justice against these people who abused her. And I also thought big corporations should be very afraid. What if the whistleblowers in their corporations, you know, talk about their policies that, you know, push women toward abortion? I I started thinking in a very different way that the whole structure could come down (laughs) under this. But that wishful thinking may be here. But those are some of the things I thought about.
1: You know the writing of Erica Bakiyaki, who's yes, yeah, a terrific yeah. pro-life feminist. And we co-authored, along with Teresa Collette and Elizabeth Kirk, a brief to the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case, the upcoming Mississippi case, yeah, the 15-week the 20- week limit yeah. of 240 women with JD, PhD, MD. It was so much fun. But one of the things that we collected in the course of writing that was that while outright sexism As a woman, you are discriminated against. Is going off the pages more discrimination on the basis of being pregnant or rearing a child is rising. Yes, I don't know if you saw, and I can't remember, Gloria. It was a big story during the Olympics. She was a track star. Yes, African American woman. Did she have a contract with Nike? She did. She had a contract with Nike, <laughs> and it was, she oof. went public with their harassment of her for getting pregnant while she was under contract. She took a hundred thousand dollars of the money she got and parcelled it out ten thousand dollars each to ten women going to the Olympics who were taking care of children. I I practically cried. It was just so beautiful. It was. It was. And just think about it, Gloria. The whole future of the society is brought about by women bringing these children into the world and still, even when they could choose otherwise, disproportionately doing the care. Yeah. That a society has refused to acclimate itself to that, to flex work long before COVID, to provide certain health care benefits. To make it a normal part of life instead of, and I don't know about your experience when you had your daughter, but when I had my first child, who is also a daughter, the sense of dread and panic and agony of how were we with limited resources, family not really able to take care of the child, how are we going to do this? Yeah. That is every woman except the richest every day. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And yeah. you know, the
1: irony is, and this is, goes back to something else she said poor women actually abort a lower percentage of their pregnancies. Oh. They have more abortions overall. Why? Because they're pregnant out of wedlock and in crisis and in poverty situations more often. But per pregnancy, they are less likely to abort, okay? Which tells you how many unintended and, and out of wedlock pregnancies we're talking about in the first place. Yeah. They want to keep the child. But in the United States, the system is set up. So that when you find out you're pregnant and you need to work and to help support your family, the first reaction in addition to joy is how no, am I ever goodness. gonna pull this off? Yes. And absolutely. Really? That's what the richest country in the world has to offer? This is the environment in which abortion seems like it's just part of the, you know, the air we breathe. Well, I sometimes
0: think that abortion has foreclosed our ability to be able to push and challenge those systems. Oh, right? yeah. So having abortion access and touting it as a right, touting it as a means of justice for women, I think skews the whole conversation in the wrong way. It's like a red herring, really, Yes. that we don't really aren't addressing the systems that are harmful to women. And as I was thinking about what you said, I will also talk about the medical profession I remember feeling like I was running the gauntlet to get to delivery because every time I had to go in for an ultrasound, the technician or the doctor reading the report was talking about, oh, we don't see a need for an abortion right now. Your child looks healthy. You know, so it was all like, you know, you will abort if we find anything (laughs) wrong with this child wrong. And I say that in air quotes. They can't see me on the podcast. But so it seemed like everything was push toward this idea of perfection. I even remember having an argument with one of my doctors that she was like, you know, you know, the responsible thing to do is abortion if something's wrong with your child, because you wouldn't want to bring more suffering in the world. And I I do find that we have this kind of abortion supposed to be the cure for something. And I remember seeing you give a talk once and someone brought out the case of rape. Yeah. And you wisely said, look, abortion is not a cure for rape. Yeah. Yeah. And we need to say that over and over. It's not a cure for rape. It's not a cure for poverty. It's not a cure for social injustice. Right. Um, But so so many of the exception cases or extreme cases are brought up as the
1: reasoning for why we need abortion. You know, what you're saying reminds me. so. I have been a member of Democrats for Life a long time. I've also, you know, thrown my hat in to join the American Solidarity Party. Yeah. All of whom seem to me to have a more consistent, coherent, pro-woman message. What I don't understand is why folks who take the feminist label or who think of themselves as on the left and therefore affiliated with social justice, with care for the weakest, I don't understand why they can't more easily be persuaded that the intense materialism, individualism, (laughs) me-first-ism, resistance to welcoming (laughs) immigrant-ism, whatever you want to call, Mm -hmm. that this is of a piece with legal abortion. Mm. That the call to the Catholic, and to me, the call to those who at least describe the left in a certain way as open to the vulnerable, it's way more radical than we can imagine, right? This, you know, someone said to me once, you're you're like really religious, aren't you? And, And I was like, what does that mean? I was like, what is the proportionate response to a God who comes to earth and who dies in a ghastly manner for me? I mean, should I be like a little bit enthused? Should I be very enthused? Should I commit like, you know, two hours a day? Or should I maybe just sort of orient my life to that? Christian love is pretty darn radical. I don't yeah. blame people. I'm not judging people personally. All I'm saying is if we really thought about how radical it is, and I, you know, I examine my conscience on this constantly, and I'm wanting constantly, and I'm trying to make progress constantly, we have to live very differently. And it's not just in the realm of the environment. Yes, that's one. It's not just in the realm of consumerism. Yes, that's one. It's it's also in the realm of, in our own families. Yeah. With the time we give old people, the time we give disabled, the time we give our children, I mean, the great irony of course of the Good Samaritan story is that the people we're most likely to stumble over on the way to the bathroom in the morning who need us, <laughs> the people we are most likely to impact with our decisions, about you know who to have sex with, whether to mm-hmm. commit with them, whether to have a child, whether to allow that child to live, whether to spend time rearing that child, they're in our house, yeah they're in our family. so the idea that the good Samaritan principle doesn't rampantly affect what goes on in your household. The idea that justice to family members and with the way we spend our money and what we do to the environment shouldn't apply as radically to this completely dependent, vulnerable human being, I don't get the disconnect. I remember seeing Mm. when Ireland had that abortion referendum and all these women were jumping up and down and crying with happiness that you could abort any human being at any time during pregnancy. I just, I didn't even, I was speechless.
0: Mm.
1: What about victories for justice that are real, that, that allow people to live and to live without fear, to live with dignity, to live with inclusion? I, I
0: well, don't but I get think, it. But Helen, I think, even as I think back to my own upbringing, the idea that you would become pregnant when it wasn't socially acceptable, convenient. One where you were financially secure was just the height of what people call irresponsibility, right? And so the responsible choice seemed to, you know, we don't even go upstream to talk about, well, what about relationships and sex? What is the meaning of that Mm -hmm. for us? And I remember I was reading Joseph Pieper and he was talking mm-hmm. about sexual aberration includes not only rape and adultery, but includes any other sort of sexual encounter that isn't a right relationship, if mm-hmm. you will. I mean, I'm 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 paraphrasing. Yeah, here. yeah. But it works. and it really made me think about, gosh, I never really think about sexual relationships having
1: an element of injustice oh, in them. Oh, do you know what? That's <laughs> what my book was, Putting Children's Interests First in U.S. Family Law. Mm. I said, the book says to the government and to certain strands of feminism, not all, that, but that go along with it, you put adults at the front door and then you say, when the problems crop up for children, we'll take care of you at the back door. So they say, well, listen, no, 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 we're thinking of children. We've got, you know, $2.3 billion of free contraception on the market and the rest of it's like very inexpensive and we'll subsidize it for anyone. Don't worry. But of course that ticks, that triggers what Janet Yellen calls, you know, risk compensation where people are like, well, sex is not really related to tomorrow. It's not really related to children. I can take care of that either through contraception or abortion. They're not, setting out to abort anybody. It's in the back of the mind. It's in the water, the air that, mm-hmm, that we're in. Mm-hmm. And the book actually says at the end, listen, when the government has these programs for, you know, they even used to have on the website of HHS, I don't know if it's back now, but it was, it was there several years ago. Listen, if you want to be a single mother, you just got to make sure you got enough money to pay the bills and do what makes you happy. This was on the HHS website. Wow. And The idea that that's responsible to children. I mean, you know, Hans Jonas, uh, or Jonas, I guess you pronounce it correctly, the great environmentalist philosopher, he said, you know, sometimes there's a really close relationship between the is and the ought. You know, one of them is the environment will be destroyed and we can't breathe. You ought not to to mess it up. And he said, this applies Mm -hmm. to children. Children are like the ultimate example where their dependency cries out for our responsibility. And Mm -hmm. when is their fate begun to gel? At the moment, we conceive them because we conceive them either in or out of a stable relationship. We conceive them in or out of a relationship that has a tomorrow where they're going to know both parents. And they really do want to know both parents. They really do. We conceive them in or out of a relationship where we could hope to be with them and to take care of them as opposed to not be able to keep them, not be able to take care of them. I even advised at the end of that book, which makes me a complete freak and outlier (laughs) if I didn't know this in family law. And I said, listen... Just like there are like warning labels on some gas pumps about the environment or it's on the size of cigarettes, there ought to be little warning labels on the side of birth control that says, listen, you know, you're thinking that this will avoid problem for conceiving a child, a problem for you, and let's say it, and problem for a child who would be conceived in a crisis situation. Think about that. Think Hmm. about that child because that child's family structure and future is largely set by the circumstances in which you conceive them. And wow. please think about the child. I mean, talk about making me a freak. It does. Yeah. But <laughs> well, that's also, when their circumstances begin.
0: Well, it's also interesting that you tie sex right back to parenthood. You know, that this act could create this child. And it's, it's, you, you kind of tie it back like this is the purpose, one of the purposes of it. And so <laughs> you, think you know, about
1: this, please. Gloria, one of the things I love to do, I had this great professor. Did you ever know this guy, Sokolowski? He's a philosophy professor at Catholic U. Did uh-uh. you ever have him? No. He, uh-uh. he always talked about, distinction being more informative than description and when you think about sex and its relationship with conception and children you have to think about the distinction oh it could have been otherwise you know what's mm. the counterfactual why did god put new life at the intersection of a man and a woman a relationship that people have always associated with love they call it making love why did he put it there he could have put it in one sex or the other we could have grown them in fields he could have handed down each one Mm -hmm. But because he did it there, that tells you something. Right. Something about their interrelationship, something about love, something about their desire for a future together and their feelings about one another that he thought was the perfect place to put a new life. He could have not made them genetically related. You know, you could look at your kid and they could look completely different. There could be no like, oh, grandma's chin or so-and-so sense of humor. All of this is by design. What does that mean about that connection between sex and having that child? It means it's darn important. (laughs) It means it's the only place that new life comes to be in God's plan. And therefore, we ought to really think long and hard about that, practically, philosophically, theologically, before we say, oh, no, it's not.
0: We'll be back in a minute.
1: I'm thinking about this
0: law. In, in in Texas that does effectively ban abortion right some people have felt that it was done in a sneaky manner because it's not the state enforcing it it's private citizens being able to bring suit and that that the way in which the law was crafted was somehow immoral because it is not in the standard way that we're used to abortion right. or anti-abortion laws or pro-life laws, have you want to say, being yeah. crafted. How do we, like, do the, end, some people say, ask the question, do the ends justify the means? So the means here is the way the law is crafted, according to our Catholic understanding, is the law itself immoral? this Texas law that bans abortions.
1: I find that argument, again, so much of the product of a media that is already assuming that we're going to find this law an outrage and an injustice against women. Mm-hmm. So is it an immoral means to a good end is the question that yes. you know, Catholics would have to ask. So allowing citizens to sue an abortion provider, is that a bad thing? I don't know. Doesn't seem bad on its face. I mean, yeah. you can imagine it being misused, but you can imagine any law being misused, right? You know, right. false accusations accompanied by harassment or threats. You can certainly, I can imagine that from from any law that bans a behavior that it could instigate. That what we have to say to ourselves: what we're really trying to do here. Is to not only stop abortion, and maybe maybe we'll stop eighty-five percent of them at least inside the the four walls of Texas. Right. But is that really an immoral means? That's it's it's legally clever. It's definitely designed to avoid the usual, which is someone passes an abortion law and then Planned Parenthood has it enjoined that is stopped within, you know, 24 hours. It definitely was clever. Is it immoral? No. I think the harder question is, wow, this abrupt, okay, six weeks, that's it. Law's coming into force, you know, in the next couple of days or the next couple of weeks. It definitely will instigate some... Panic and worry—it certainly instigates a blowback. You know, will it, while it's doing the good of maybe some people not getting pregnant in the first place, mm. some people deciding not to have an abortion? Mm. Um, will it also have some sort of hardening effects? Some sort of sort of harden people's hearts against. Laws like this. I mean, this is the future that we hope to have, right? Which is abortion is cut back dramatically or or not legal in almost any cases. Did they set up a panic that is going to impede laws in the future? And I, I don't know. I still think it's the right thing to do to, if someone is being harmed, you just want to stop it. There's going to be consequences. People are going to say, if you don't let me do X, Y, and Z, it's going to be bad for me. But we can't allow them to use a bad means to a good end. So, no, it's not immoral on its face. I'm hopeful that the backlash against it by the powers that be, you know, elite media, elite government figures, elite corporations, elite university professors, where the backlash is coming from. I certainly hope that it doesn't harden people's hearts against a gradual reduction of abortion. So
0: that is the point, right? That is another point that people have talked about. We want to make abortion unthinkable. Is changing the law a means of doing that? And I also think it's a... A question of people assuming it can only be one way. And we know as pro lifers, it's always a both end. You're doing something legally, but you're also doing things to try to change the culture's attitudes yes. and perceptions. You're also doing things to try to help these women and children oh, in yes. crisis all of these things together. You wrote an article, I think, back in 2011 called The Lazy Slander of the Pro-Life Cause yeah. because Yeah. I'm hearing a lot of those same I know. aspersions that you're only pro-birth. And I was like, what are you talking about? All you know, Gloria, that together. one,
1: there, there aren't too many things that send me over the moon. I'm getting too old for that. But <laughs> this slander that, you know, you only care about the child being born. The irony, of course, is that the legal abortion industry and groups that support legal abortion do nothing for women in crisis pregnancies. I mean, nothing. And, and the irony of the pro-life movement being charged with that, when we are the people who've set up over 3,000 centers for women in difficulty, you know, the Catholic Church alone and its Catholic charities, I think they're helping something like 12 million women a year. Yeah. I mean, we're just one church. Like the irony of that accusation, when all of it, can be charged against supporters of legal abortion. It does drive me crazy. That said, while we have been building a culture of crisis pregnancy assistance, while, you know, it's a two-edged sword. Single motherhood is more accepted. It's no less problematic for kids, but they are giving birth to children in circumstances and not being socially excised, the culture has moved. And this is part of why abortions have been reduced, especially since 1990, right? They, they skyrocketed from 73 to 90, and they've been mostly going down since that time, because we have created a culture of caring for women in crisis pregnancies. But it's all been created on the pro-life side. The insistence that a woman is doomed. I often use the phrase from what's that movie, Freaky Friday, to a phoneless, oh, yeah. dateless, Amish existence, right? If she has a PR. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> is really all coming from supporters of legal abortion, right? You know, you mm-hmm. have to be woman alone doing your thing, choosing yourself at all times, or you're not really free. Right. And abortion allows you to choose yourself, even to the point of destroying another life. But be that as it may, that's what it takes to choose. But preparing this culture further, again, we're getting no help from supporters of legal abortion to help the world accept us with our children, convenient or not for them. And it's a struggle the pro-life movement has been waging for a long time, but we need more help. We need, we need to cross party lines. We need to cross feminist lines. And we also need to excise that part of the
0: movement that actually operates against women's interests. Running into these people that seem to twist our understanding of human freedom and what it is to be a mother to mean a woman is sinning if she works outside the home when she has children. And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, is that kind of thing? And I was like, why do they always give the microphone to that person? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Why does yeah. the media always give the microphone to that person? I was like, they don't represent
1: us, you know? Yeah. I did, Um, I forget who did it. Was it Netflix or Amazon? Did like a 12 part series, a seven part series on Roe vs. Wade. And they interviewed me. And they Netflix. interviewed a number of other women and we were all left on the cutting floor. Yes,
0: it was Netflix. I think and was in Netflix. the
1: end, they had like five pro-life men and one woman and like 12 pro-choice women. And it's just, yeah. it's a setup.
0: It's <laughs> the way the I, image is crafted. Oh the my god! story is
1: told. It's so a total setup.
0: I'm hoping our listeners by listening to this podcast recognize that they're listening to two women of color talk about this law in Texas um, the possibilities for women and what more we can do to help create this culture of life that the legal aspect is just one mm-hmm. aspect of it. And there's much more that we invite people to join us in doing. And we also, I think, are inviting people to reconfigure their thoughts about what justice is, You know, to reconfigure their thoughts about what abortion truly is, to reconfigure their thoughts about what it is and how our society is ordered that actually harms women. And that those are the things we need to challenge. I just keep over and over, and I think this is where I have so much in common with feminists, is the idea of patriarchy being a domination of the woman and something that we don't want, right? Mm -hmm. Catholics, we don't want this unjust domination of women. But that means we have to ask the same questions we ask when we're examining systemic racism, right? What systems, structures, attitudes, practices, traditions have led us to this
1: place? And let's challenge them. Yes. And in the United States, it should come as a shock to no one that one of those systemic prejudices that operates against women is the idea that you come alone and you stand on your own two feet and you don't have to spend any time on care for others. You are what uh, the, the feminist scholar Joan Williams called the ideal male worker. Yes, and the ideal male I worker. I cannot believe how operative that still is. Sometimes I just, I'm so overwhelmed at what it would take to change that. Well, I think talking about this, first of all,
0: because we help unveil that thinking, that has been something that's perplexed me for a while, is that this pattern for women's perfection is male. The male body does not react have the consequences or react to sex the way the female body does. There's so many things about who we are just as women that is automatically seen as a curse, whether it's a period, whether it's pregnancy, right. whether it's motherhood and the attachments, the or even the emotional attachments that we naturally develop from a sexual encounter. Mm-hmm. Somehow that's wrong, bad, and weak. And I'm right. like, what? <laughs> so, I mean, just to really challenge that whole understanding of what it is to be human, to realize that we are a dimorphic species, that women stand alone. We are our
1: own being. And I think we need to explore that more. I often will say that the original diversity alongside equality is the first creation, right? It's the male and the female. Mm. The allowance for differences, both of which are gifts, and that work together to create something bigger, the male and female are the first but not the only you know then we we step back and then it's extended family then it's different tribes then it's different races and nations etc mm. and you go back and back and back but it's so clear that one of the sort of innovations of, of our god is diversity alongside equality differences made not for ranking but for mutual giving mm. that one and one makes 3 mm. and that that's the model that applies between races, between ethnicities. And it's. I know it sounds very ideal, but I just think the this is why sex, marriage, and parenting are such a central discussion in Christianity. And if we get rid of opposites with a lack that leads them to come together with others, to cooperate, and to create something new, we've not only lost the basis of the family, but we've also lost that whole idea that that Cooperation is good. Community is good. Different gifts are good. Mm -hmm. Opening the door to the immigrant, the person of different race, nation, et cetera, is good. The analogy begins in the family. Mm. And that's, I think, why it's such a central metaphor in scripture. And if we lose it, we lose the vision of these other things, too, I think. I think you know the family is the school of love. It's not just a sweet, soft JP two ish theology of the body thing. It's about the place where differences are negotiated. And it's
0: somehow when you say the school of love, I thought of the the furnace, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in this fire that we're in, but realizing that God is in there with us, right? Mm-hmm. And also to have some hope in this. And I keep thinking as we talk about this, this sort of panic the sort of outrage about this law, this sort of feeling that women are being done wrong. I think if we look at this through the lens of the church, through the lens of what justice really is to the natural rights that women have, we're not, we don't have the right to be free of who God made us to be, right? Right.
1: And it wouldn't even feel like freedom.
0: It it is, because it isn't, right? And to maybe think more deeply about these things as they come into the public sphere and look at things through the lens of the faith and to understand that, we need to do both and on the way of making abortion unthinkable and making it illegal what else can i do to help create this culture of life and it does involve also looking at our personal activities you know when you talk about the intimate relationships we have you know how is my how are how are my behaviors my decisions bringing forth a culture of life or Something contrary to it. Yes. Ooh,
1: that's the struggle in it. It's very demanding. <laughs> it's so demanding. You know, again, apparently, you know, when one is fully practiced in it, you get accustomed to, you know, sacrifice and generosity and mutual gift giving as a thing that comes more easily. But in the US, our, I mean, we're, we're so proud of so much about our individualism and it's a lot of fun and we can't forget the individual. We don't want to go back to a situation where the individual means nothing, right? right. And it's all authority or assimilation, et cetera, right. but we've overdone it. And an abortion is, it's just a prime example. And it just breaks my heart that feminism was again, inflected toward that when it could have gone in another direction. Maybe we can help change that. Yes. Maybe we can help steer the ship back in the right direction. That's right. You know, we don't want to fall for the fallacy of the present, that the bad stuff will continue forever. Amen. I love that. Oh, (laughs) the the fallacy of the present. I love that. I love that. (laughs) It's great. I don't know if you've ever seen this book. I forget what it's called. Homo sapiens by... I believe he's an Israeli writer. He writes these sort of big think books, Yuval. Mm. Anyway, it's not Yuval Levin. Anyway, um, at the end Mm. of it, he talks about the fact that humans have only been highly individualistic for like a little bit of time. Mm. And that he says that given the course of history and humans, you know, actual makeup, and that we're not really that different from people thousands of years ago, we can only continue on this road for so long. Mm. that we will have to go back to our communal origins.
0: Imagine that.
1: I just was reminded that it's Yuval Harari is the author of that book, Sapiens. And I I found it kind of hopeful. It's, you know, one of the great things about the Catholic faith, right, is that we say, I think in St. Paul, you know, whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is beautiful, it all comes in. And you have these secular and scientific empirical authors who write these things that are this marvelous sort of intellectual complement and confirmation of things that we believe as Catholics, and it's beautiful to to fold that in.
0: I have to read that, and that's one of the things that we know. We talk about our communal origins, the
1: common good, mm-hmm. the common wheel, however yes. people want to say it, the universal destination of, the, of, goods. of goods, the yes. common good. You know, I mean, wow. We again, we really are radical in it, and if people would realize that our discussion of abortion, our discussion of, you know, love in marriage, open to children, it all seems mind-blowingly radical. But if you practice it, it actually seems to be the thing that comes naturally to you after you make the sacrifice to go down that road. The sacrifice. I think that's what's the scary part, the sacrifice. Mm-hmm.
0: And as our misguided secular understanding of freedom is that there should never be any sacrifices. Right. Do what thou wilt. Isn't that something Satan once said? Do yes, what thou wilt. That wilt. That it's got to be in
1: Goethe somewhere. <laughs> right,
0: right. <laughs> Well, you know, I am wishing we could talk another two, three hours, but I know we have our obligations. But to me, this was just thank you so much, Helen, for using your your legal training to help us understand on the law and your fidelity to the beauty of the teachings of the church to give us a greater vision. What can be, what should be, and that we can help to make that because the future, what do you call it? The tyranny of the present, the yes. fallacy of the present, the fallacy not, of the present, the fallacy of the present. Let us not be fooled by that. Thank you so Thank much. You and so I'm much, sure Gloria. our listeners are going to appreciate this conversation to get to hear your wonderful voice. Thank hey, it's you. It's been Helen. a
1: pleasure talking to you. Mine Thanks, too. Gloria. Thank
0: you, Helen. Bye bye. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share an episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Hey, could you leave us a review? I would love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.